Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your host and nonprofit consultant. I'd like to welcome Kathy Patrick to the podcast today. Kathy Patrick helps progressive nonprofit leaders build influence and create powerful relationships with all types of decision makers so that they can increase the impact and the reach of their organizations, attract more resources to their work, and free up time to do the creative, visionary work they were meant to do. She's been helping progressive nonprofit leaders for over 25 years as a consultant, teacher, and coach with a special focus on direct service providers. Working with her one-on-one and through online courses and training programs, her clients and students have seen incredible results by applying her simple principles and following them consistently. In addition to practical how-tos, she helps leaders with their inner game so they can uncover the hidden blocks to success and raise their influence to levels they never thought possible. Kathy and I delve into what it takes to influence decision makers. So many nonprofit leaders struggle with finding out about important decisions too late in the process to have any real say in the outcome, leaving them in a reactive mode, frustrated and demoralized. We talk about the concrete steps leaders can take to create a plan, identify who is key to your organization, and how to start building a relationship with them before you need their help, how you can build a collaborative, problem-solving relationship, why it's so important to remember that key decision makers are human first and not fixate on their title and role, and why direct service nonprofits have such value to bring to decision makers. Enjoy. So welcome, Kathy. Uh, Great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. And I just want to start out by asking you, um, what drew you to the work that you do? How did how did you kind of get where you are? What's what what was your journey? Hmm. Journey. Well, (laughs) I started out actually in advocacy work, and my first big leadership role was running a statewide women's rights organization in Wisconsin, and I had two main jobs there: basically make good policies happen and keep harmful policies from happening. And then I came to Washington to work at a national women's employment organization, which is where you and I met. And part of my job there was the same thing, only at the federal level. But the other part was to help the 1,200 or so direct service programs in our national network. And they would call with what seemed like policy problems, but in fact, they were about something much deeper. And they were struggling with all sorts of decisions that were getting made, funding decisions, policy decisions, you name it. But they were all getting made without their input. And they were finding out about potential threats and opportunities at the last minute, or sometimes too old to even do anything about it. And the result was that they were just constantly in reactive mode. They were feeling powerless, frustrated, exhausted, and demoralized. And that's when I realized that what all these problems had in common was that folks just didn't have enough influence with the decision makers. And until they changed that, they weren't going to get different results. And so we started creating training programs to help leaders improve their access and influence, and it worked. They started getting a seat at some of the key tables and helping to guide the thinking there, and that meant more and better opportunities and fewer disasters started coming their way. And so when I started my consulting business, I 
moved out of the employment universe and started working with all different kinds of nonprofits and healthcare and nutrition and housing and a bunch of other issues. And I found that, in fact, no matter what you're working on, there is a universal truth for all nonprofit leaders. And that's when you have strong, influential relationships with the key decision makers in your world, you consistently get more opportunities coming your way and have fewer instances of having to deal with the impact of harmful decisions. And that means that leaders get to spend more time doing the creative, visionary work they were meant to do, which is why we all got into this in the first place, right? We want to solve big problems and make a big impact. And that's pretty hard to do when you're being yanked around by decisions that you don't have a lot of control over. So I'm all about, at this point, helping nonprofit leaders create that influence so that they can do what they were really put here to do. So uh, in terms of creating that influence and building those relationships and kind of getting out of that reactive mode that you describe, what are some of the key steps that organizations can start taking to start building the, the, that, that influence with decision makers that, you're, that you talk about? Well, it's, you know, the good news is it's actually pretty simple. It's not necessarily easy, but it's pretty simple. There's about five and a half steps to getting that done. Um, but the, the other thing that I would say is that this is perhaps counterintuitively, maybe one of the best possible times to be thinking about either starting that work or doing more of it, because uh, it's really all about figuring out how you can help those decision makers solve the problems they're working on. And there's, I've got some steps that I'll walk us through to how to do that. But the reality is that a lot of times, one of the first steps in figuring out how you're going to build a relationship with a decision maker is to figure out well, what are, what's important to them? What problems are they working on? What, what keeps them up at night? And right now, in, while we're all in ongoing pandemic mode and will probably be there for the foreseeable future, some interesting things are happening. Routines are blown out of the water. No decision-making process is routine right now. And all of the usual plodding bureaucratic approaches to things are not really happening. And instead, what's happening is that everybody is totally focused on the immediate problems at hand that are coming out of all of the disruption that's occurring. And so it's actually pretty easy to figure out what problems people are working on because we're all kind of working on the same things. So that actually makes everybody's job a little bit easier, if a bit more chaotic. So basic steps to this are to, first of all, just pick a decision maker or two, um, and not 20 decision makers, but like one or two that are Can really you give important. me an example of who, who, who might that be? Like if for, a, for an organization that you've worked with before, what, who are the key, some of the key people that they might need to be reaching out to? Sure. So it could be, um, you know, the first thing that people always think about are like elected officials. And that's great. You know, you could, you could think in terms of your city council or your county board or your state legislature or members of your state legislature, maybe a key committee chair, somebody who might be in charge of uh, policy or funding that you would care about, something like that. It would also be administrative bodies. So again, I'm just thinking in 
pandemic pandemic terms and all of the problems that are rolling out of that. So it might be a a county health department or a city employment agency or a city housing department, those kinds of uh, administrative creatures. It can also be funders. It could be grant makers, foundations, corporate partners, um, or corporate partners you wish you had. Um, There are a lot of interesting uh, corporate nonprofit partnerships that are happening right now to tackle some of these problems. So it's really, the way I always put it to to new clients is any decision maker who has the ability to make a decision that will impact your organization's well-being or the well-being of the people you serve is potentially a legitimate relationship building target. But those are the kinds of categories that they typically fall into. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, so often people think, uh, when they think about this work, they think um, primarily about government-related folks. And I was working in a, in a network that was trying to, you know, make change in a, in a large watershed. And one of the things that they were trying to do was influence, you know, they were, they were working at the municipal level, so pretty local, but then also with individual landowners. And, um, you know, some of those landowners are, are, have, large tracts of land, they might be corporate related or, or, or whatnot. And I, you know, everyone's going to the, the legislative folks and, and trying to get their bit in. And I, I said, well, what if you were to, because this was about like how you do things, right? How you do things on the ground and changing practice, changing um, how people do their work. And so I was like, there's so many associations for every single one of these fields and there are probably three people who make decisions about what that entire field gets trained on. And if you could get to those people and get them to get trained on sustainable practices for whatever you're trying to do, you could influence huge amounts of people. But it's, it, it's like a real, not on people's radar, that there are all these other groups that they could influence beyond government folks. Exactly. And that's, you know, I used to talk about this work as, uh, I used to use the word advocacy. And I stopped using that word because people's brains immediately go to elected officials and they shut out all the other possibilities. And so I decided I could either explain 150 times that no, advocacy is much bigger than that, or I could just talk about it differently. <laughs> so I went with talking about it differently because when I, when I thought about it more, I realized it really is all about influencing people's thinking and their decision-making process, whatever that is, but that ultimately what you want to do is be engaged in a collaborative problem-solving relationship with them. And when you get to that point, you've kind of hit the holy grail of influence, right? Who do you listen to more in, as, in life as a human being than somebody who's helping you solve a problem? Yeah, and I think that's often the, the challenge, again, going back to that word advocacy, it's, it's so, um, you know, and I'm not an expert in this, but when I've seen it, when I've, when I've seen what I perceive it, it as it being done badly, it's all about a one-way conversation. We have these talking points, we're going to tell you what to do, and, you know, if you've ever tried to tell your cat or your child or anybody what to do, you know how well that works. So I, I'd love to know more about how you move it towards that collaborative problem solving. 
Right. Well, the first, yeah, I mean, I just have to pick up on, on what you just said, because it's, it's so true, and it drives me crazy. And unfortunately, there's a bunch of, you know, sort of advocacy experts out there that are not helping with this. You know, how many uh, nonprofit leaders who are part of a larger organization of some sort, whether it's a national association or a network or whatever, and you come to Washington for your Hill Day every year, and what do they tell you? You have to have an ask. Don't go into your meeting with your elected without an ask. And that is, there's a certain amount of legitimacy to that in that you don't want to just go in there and blather, but the worst possible way to initiate a relationship is to say, hi, nice to meet you. I want something from you. You know, that doesn't work too well either. It would be a really bad dating strategy and it's a pretty bad relationship building strategy with decision makers. And so it's, the thing is that relationship building takes an investment over time. And so the idea that you're going to walk into a meeting and start telling somebody what you do and therefore they should help you with something is almost guaranteed to fail. And so the best time to be developing a relationship is long before you actually need them to do something for you. And also to approach it again with that collaborative problem solving mindset that we're peers, we each have an angle on a particular problem we can help each other solve it. And if you can be a collaborative partner in that way, you're going to go a long way toward having them know who you are, trust you, appreciate your abilities and expertise, appreciate the contributions your organization can make. And they're also going to start to trust you. And, you know, the thing that we forget to talk about a lot of times is that relationships are built on trust. And so if they don't have some reason to know, like, and trust you, you're, you're going to have an uphill battle if you want to influence them in any way. So, to, to make, so how do you do that, right? Well, basically, <laughs> you make a plan. And so, like I said, start by picking one or two. Because one of the mistakes people make is they start to think about this and they go, oh, my goodness. So if I think about all the decision makers who could have an impact on my organization and the people I serve, that's a lot of people. And then they make a list of 20 or 50 or 100 people, and then they get overwhelmed and freak out and don't do anything. <laughs> so that, that does not generally work as a strategy. So what makes sense is pick a couple. And particularly right now, I'm pretty sure that every nonprofit leader out there has a couple decision makers who are kind of on their radar right now that they really like to be engaging with more effectively. And take a little minute to write down, I, I'm a few bullet points here and there to just sort of keep your thinking focused. Make a few notes to yourself about why they're important. What why did I pick them? Why, how can they affect my organization? How can they affect the people we serve? And also take a minute to take, make some notes on what would your ideal collaborative relationship with them look like? Because if you don't have some idea of where you're trying to go, it's going to be much harder to get there. And similarly, it requires a little bit of brutal honesty, and this is kind of step two, which is to assess where you are now in your relationship with that person and 
compared to the ideal that you described. So if my ideal relationship with a uh, county commissioner is that I, you know, there are uh, five things that come across that's in their jurisdiction and decision-making realm that I know on an annual basis are going to have a big impact on my organization. And I need them to do ultimately two things. I need them to give me a heads up if something new is going to come along that could either help me or hurt me. And I want to be able to be in on the conversations early enough that I cannot just be, you know, coming in at the end saying, I, I want you to vote yes or no, but to be saying, I want to help shape the plan that you create. Because the work that we do directly intersects with that, and we could help each other a lot here. So if that's kind of my ideal and what I want that to be looking like, and where I am now in my relationship is, they kind of know who I am, and they've sort of heard of my organization, and they sort of know what we do, but a lot of times when they describe it, they get it wrong. Well, you know, I've got a ways to go to get to my ideal, but at least I know where I am. You know, and if I'm further along, if we do have a more uh, solid relationship and they maybe come to my events, they know who we are, they've maybe volunteered at our organization a couple of times, they've met our clients, they have a pretty solid idea of who we are and what we do, but they don't necessarily see us as central to the problem they're working on. Well, that's a much shorter trip for me to get to my ideal, and it also gives me some idea of what my main tasks are. Right. So once you have that sense, you can start to build that roadmap between where you are now and what your ideal is. And the biggest question to ask yourself at that point is, how can I add value or help solve a problem they're working on right now? And before people get worked up here, this does not mean that you should go out and start a whole new initiative, unless that makes sense for you for some reason. But instead, look at what you're already doing. How have you been adapting your operations and services for greater impact in this completely chaotic and upheaval time? And how does that help solve the problem? And obviously, always look at how you can continue to adapt and improve. But basically, start with what you're already doing. And it's really a matter of how does understanding how does this intersect with what that decision maker is working on and what they're focused on. And once you've made some notes to yourself to lay that out, what you've done is you've begun to go down the road of thinking about the world from the decision maker's perspective. One of the biggest mistakes that almost everybody makes trying to engage a decision maker is they'll go in and and it's, you know, a chorus of me, 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 me. This is what we do. This is what we're about. This is how many people we serve, blah, 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 blah. And that's all great. There will be a time and a place to share that information. But it's one of those where you mentioned kids and cats, right? I sometimes think that when we're talking, what they're thinking to themselves is your lips are moving, but all I hear is blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of how a decision maker is going to react if you're not framing what you do in terms of something they really care about. And getting to know them as a person, because I think that's the thing that people forget too. They hear, they see the word decision maker or that big title of senator, you know, um, county commissioner, municipal 
council person, whatever. And they forget there's person in there, that that person is, it, there's, they're people first. And so, you know, it is, so not to forget everything you know already about relating to people uh, versus relating to that title. Right. And um, yeah, yeah. So and a great story. I had a, a, a client in Connecticut who had a, um, a, an elected official that they needed to, to get on board with something they were trying to make happen. And they just couldn't figure out how to connect with her. She was not responding to them. It's not, and, and they had reason to believe that she would be generally an ally given her political leanings and so on. They thought, well, if we could, if we could just engage with her, we think we could probably get her to play, but we can't figure out how to get her to talk to us. And so finally they did some research and found out that, well, in addition to whatever else she did for a living, she raised goats as a hobby and she had a little dairy goat farm. So my client went out and visited the dairy goat farm and hung out for a day and just chatted with her about her goats. Right. And it broke everything wide open. All of a sudden, now she was taking his phone calls. She was sending him pictures of the goats. It was <laughs> a completely different interaction because he approached her as a human being. Right. And expressed interest in something she cared about. Now, it didn't, in that case, it wasn't at all about the thing they were working on. It was like, hey, I took the time to come up here and hang with you and your goats. And that really made a difference to her. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was a, that's a really good point, Carol. And I think that people often will forget that. And related to that, I think, is something that um, is, is part of the inner game thing that uh, can be such a struggle for folks particularly if they're with a, you know, leading a smaller organization or one that has had um, some tough times engaging with decision makers and have not felt like they've come out too well in that process. There's a tendency to kind of go to decision makers as a supplicant, mm. you know, and kind of saying, oh, great poobah decision maker person. We hope that you will smile upon us and not kill us and be nice to us and maybe do something for us. And that does not play well. Um, it actually is, is incredibly counterproductive. And what they're much more likely to respond to is if you approach them as a peer and someone who has value to bring, who has problem-solving abilities, who's going to be able to be a partner in something that matters. And how, so, how do you help people step into that um, feeling like they're, they're a peer and that they can engage in the conversation in that way? Well, that's an interesting question. It kind of depends on what's in the way in the first place. And what uh, are some of the things that are typical that get in the way? Well, um, lived experience. Um, as I mentioned, with, with smaller nonprofits in particular, if they've been, if their experience has been, for example, with, uh, with funders, that they've been kind of yanked around by the funders and, and felt like, you know, it doesn't, no matter what we do, you know, they, they only pick their friends and they never pick us and it's the whole system's rigged and, you know, and, and, and then they have unreasonable expectations and they have bad deadlines. And, you know, so they, they begin to work up a whole story about how this is the enemy. And 
this decision maker is not my friend and they are going to be mean to me. I just know it. And so if you start with that story, you're pretty much doomed from the beginning. And so one of the things that is really helpful, and this is why I always say to folks at the very beginning, describe what your ideal collaborative relationship with that decision maker would look like and start part of the the inner game transformation is to start to tell yourself a new story about, okay, well then if my ideal collaborative relationship is like the example I was using earlier with a county board member that, you know, this is what they're doing for me. Well, why are they doing that? Well, how am I showing up so that they want to treat me that way? Well, I'm coming in as a problem solving partner who has good ideas and who can work together with them to fix this. And I envision myself literally sitting at a table with them where we are, well, maybe this is a bad visual right at the moment since we're, nobody's sitting across the table from anybody, but you know, maybe we're sitting across the Zoom table from one another um, and we're, or we're on the phone together or whatever. And we're talking together about, well, what about this idea? Well, have you tried this? Well, what if we, wait a minute, we see, I see this problem over here and this problem over there. And I think this is how they intersect. And maybe there's a way that we could do X to solve both of those at once, whatever it is. But if you start imagining yourself in that kind of a role where you're relating to them as a peer, that you're, you imagine actually having the conversation. And I encourage folks to even, you know, however you, I know people hate role plays when they're formal, but, you know, like talk to your dog and pretend it's the decision maker, you know, um, whatever your role play version is, but to actually practice those conversations until you get comfortable talking to them that way. And, and, you know. and thinking about, you know, cause I could imagine, um, you know, there, the, the, the situation you're describing, there's certainly, you know, power differentials there and, you know, lived experience, but what does that, the person who's looking to build that relationship with the decision maker, what do they have that the decision maker doesn't have? It may, they may have perspective about a community, um, connections to a community that, that the decision maker would be valuable. There's all sorts of things that that person, all sorts of, um, you know, assets that that person has if they just start to think about it. And certainly in what you were describing, I mean, I could imagine that, you know, some of that anger and frustration and disappointment could be really valid and, it gets in the way of building that relationship. So, you know, so it's both, right? Yeah. And it's, yeah. And I actually made me think of about half a dozen things there, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tackle the, I'm going to tackle the last one first. Cause it's kind of the, it's a little bit of an elephant sitting on the table here that we didn't raise, which is that, you know, when we talk, whenever you start talking about power and influence, um, you can't really talk about power and influence without acknowledging um, systemic racism, sexism, uh, all kinds of economic inequalities of all kinds, uh, you know, cultural biases, there's all kinds of stuff that, you know, there are, there are reasons that entire communities of people have been systematically disenfranchised. And so I don't want to pretend that those aren't real and those aren't there and that you can just wave a magic wand and say, aha, I shall just, you know, make the decision maker not be a product of all of those realities and systems. It does not, definitely doesn't work that way or we would have all just done that. 
And that would be a really awesome magic wand. But the, so the lived experience is incredibly important, but it's also, um, it's critical not to let that be the determinant of how you operate moving forward. And it may be that there will be some decision makers who are so fatally biased in one way or another against some aspect of what you or your organization represents that they will not be a good target for relationship building. Not everyone is. Um, And I actually had to have a a conversation with a client recently where um, he was just beating his head against the wall with a particular decision maker. And I finally had to say to him, you know what? She just doesn't like you. And we don't know why somewhere along the way she decided she didn't like you. And I don't think that's going to change. We need somebody else to build that relationship. Who else can we get? And so we actually, you know, picked somebody else who was part of that coalition who didn't have baggage with her. And they were able to very quickly uh, establish a decent connection and go forward. But so, you know, there also is the reality sometimes somebody just doesn't like you and there's not always something you can do about it. Um, So So what are some of the ways that you would have people kind of, you know, you talked about, you know, they start out, they, they list huge number of people, it gets overwhelming and they get stuck. But so then, you know, I I was with a group recently, we were, it wasn't around, it was around, um, you know, what partnerships could they get involved in? And within about 15 minutes of brainstorming, we had a list of about 100 organizations. Well, clearly this tiny little volunteer-led organization was not going to be establishing partnerships with 100 organizations. So I had them, you know, kind of do a matrix of what's easy and what's impactful um, and try to have them focus on those. Um, How do you uh, have people uh, kind of prioritize um, those, you know, and and narrow it down so that, so that it is manageable? Yeah. Any of those kind of tricks work pretty well. I I do. I'll sometimes have folks pick like a, a low, medium, high rating for two different axes. Um, And one will be, you know, how, how much, uh, in case, in the case of partnership, actually the, the thing that you suggest is probably what I would use in the case of a more of a decision maker role. It's more of a, um, and you might even have three categories. You might have an immediacy category Mm -hmm. where, you know, we know that in the next, uh, six to 12 months, this decision maker is going to be making a decision that is, has dramatic impact on us. So it's both high impact and immediacy. So that would move them to the top of the priority list. Um, you, the other factor that is relevant is that everybody's got relationships with some decision makers. They might not be really well-developed relationships, but for the most part, if, you're function, if, if your organization is still in existence, um, you as a leader have managed to build some productive relationships with decision makers, or you'd probably be gone by now. So. A lot of times when things are feeling kind of overwhelming and you maybe don't have necessarily that immediacy or obvious high impact, sometimes the best thing to do is say, well, where have we got a pretty good relationship already, but we feel like it could be so much better. And that may be a good one to tackle, particularly right now, because again, everybody's bandwidth is a little limited right now. 
And so um, depending on the situation that you're in, you might want to say, you know, we've had this decision maker who likes us well enough. They don't totally get what we do, but we're pretty well aligned with what they're working on. Let's And so alignment is another piece. If your work is really well aligned with a the problem they're working on, that's a really good um, priority selector as well. And so all of those really go back to kind of what's important and what's easy, which is pretty much what you flagged to begin with. Those are just different ways of talking about it. Sure, sure. Yeah, and so it's interesting. You've worked a lot with direct service providers, and I feel like oftentimes in the in our sector, there's been kind of a false dichotomy where direct service and, and all right, I've got the word advocacy here, uh, influencing, um, <laughs> have kind of been pit, pitted against each other that, you know, um, where folks who do direct service are often told, well, you know, move further up, you know, you're, you're just throwing the fish back into the sea, go back and see why they're coming out, right? And, but to me, it's, you know, there are people in need and there are systems that need to be addressed. So it's both. So I'm, I'm curious that, that you've specialized really in working with direct service providers. How do you see how, how they can bring actually, you know, particular value to influencing decision makers and systems? Well, one, this goes back to something you mentioned um, earlier when I said you named like six things that I wanted to tackle. And this <laughs> one, of them. Um, one of the, huge, huge assets that direct service providers have that other groups don't have that like the the classic advocacy organizations and associations and so on really don't have is they, the direct service nonprofits have a direct connection to the members of the community that they are serving. They have a clarity of understanding of what the actual problems on the ground look like and how they're impacting real people's lives. And they're also actively engaged in addressing those needs. And so for the most part, they can fill in with a clarity that few other organizations can do the actual human face of the problem. And for most decision makers, that's a critical piece of the puzzle. If it's just, you know, chess pieces on a board that they're moving around or other abstract concepts that they're making decisions. Lots of data and graphs. Yeah. You know, and that's all important. We need those too, because data driven decision-making is a thing for a reason. Um, But so you, you want to be able to come with data and, and information like that as well, but to be able to talk about the people who are actually being served and the things that they're struggling with is not only valuable in putting a human face on the problem, it helps the decision maker understand the problem in a new and different way. And the other thing that tends to also happen is that talk about finding personal connections with decision makers as human beings. For most direct service organizations, whatever they're working on, whether it's, you know, maybe they're, you know, serving people with cancer or they're uh, helping people with complicated housing issues as renters or whatever it is, they or employment services, whatever they're working on, chances are someone in that decision maker's family has dealt with something connected to that problem. And it is off, they will often volunteer that information. 
You know, I've seen more times than I can count. I've been in, in meetings with decision makers and clients where the client would be talking about, well, you know, here's an example of someone we help. And they would describe the person's situation and the decision maker will pipe up and say, oh, my aunt had that problem. My cousin had that problem. I, you know, I have a friend who dealt with that. And all of a sudden, first of all, they've handed you information that is absolute gold because now you know how to connect to them on a personal level, but also they're busy making that connection on their own. And so that's a huge value add that the direct service nonprofits can bring. And the other thing is that in my experience, for the most part, direct service nonprofit leaders are fully well aware of the the systemic problems and issues that, and the policy failures that cause the need for their services in the first place. They've chosen, because that's where their passion and purpose is, to address those problems directly through direct service. But that doesn't mean they're not aware of the systems issues and the policy issues that are part of the reason we, st- we have to have those services at all. But what they are able to do is make that bridge between policy and reality on the ground in a way that many others are not. So I would say it's actually an asset. Uh, The thing that can sometimes be challenging for direct service nonprofit leaders is that even more than other 501c3 leaders, they may um, have to help their boards understand why engaging, especially elected officials, that is not only okay, but important and necessary work. And that takes a little, that can sometimes take a little education, but um, it helps a lot if you don't call it advocacy, actually, (laughs) because boards tend to have, C3 boards, especially direct service C3 boards, tend to have a bit of a knee-jerk anti-advocacy reaction simply because they don't understand really what it is and how it works and what the rules are and that not only is it not a a problem to do that, but it's absolutely, it really should be an essential part of every um, nonprofit's mission and part of their strategic plan. So I want to shift gears a little bit. You hold a fourth level black belt and I didn't know that there were levels of black belt. So I, I now know something new in now let me make, hopefully I'm pronouncing it right. Jiu-jitsu. Is that right? Mm Mm-hmm. So how has learning that martial art help you with your, the work that you do with organizations? Well, it actually, what it does is it makes me a way better teacher hmm. and coach. I taught jujitsu and practical self-defense for about 15 years. And we would get lots and lots of people who had never practiced a martial art in their life. And it was brand new to them. And it's a constant reminder to me that you don't need to know a lot to be able to be effective. And so that was what I really took from that teaching process is that, you know, it it takes many, many years to um, reach even the first level of black belt and then many more years to progress beyond that. And by the time you get there, you know a lot about a lot of different things. but If somebody just wants to know how to defend themselves from a common attack, you know, I can teach somebody in a day what they need to know and give them enough practice at it to be able to feel like, okay, 
if something sketchy happens, I might, I might actually be okay. At least I have better tools now than I did when I started when I walked in the door. And so it helps me stay focused on making sure that not everybody needs to become a black belt in anything to be, to be effective at it. They just need to have a decent toolkit that they can access readily and that feels comfortable to them. And that, that if they've got that, they're good to go. And that's true with the kind of work with influencing decision makers too. You don't need to know 100,000 skills. You just need to know a handful and practice them regularly. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. I want to share an exciting new opportunity with you today. Since everyone has shifted into remote work, lots of people are having to meet lead meetings online. You may have been comfortable with leading the meeting when everyone was gathered around a table together, but how can you help groups work effectively together online? I can help you as I've been creating online learning experiences since the early 2000s. If you'd like to build your confidence leading meetings online, join me for a four-week group coaching program where you will learn the essentials of effective online or virtual facilitation. My next cohort is starting September 22nd, and registration is open now. Just go to gracesocialsector.com forward slash effective dash online dash facilitation. We're back on Mission Impact. So one thing I do at the end of each episode is play a little game where I ask uh, one semi-random icebreaker question. So given what we just were talking about, I've got one for you. Um, If you could arm wrestle any historical figure, who would you choose and why? Oh, my goodness. I wish I'd had time to prepare. That's such a fun question. Wow. Any historical figure. Oh, dear. You've stumped me completely. The, the, the first one that came to mind was uh, RBG, but that wouldn't be a fair fight because I'd flatten her. But on the other hand, if we, had, if we could arm wrestle our brains, then, you know, she'd flatten me. So how can people find out more about the work that you do and get in touch? I've got a couple things here that I'd like to, to share with folks. I've got a, since we didn't get through all the steps, because we were busy talking about a lot of things. I've got a free worksheet with all the steps list out, listed out for your listeners to help them build their influence with a few key decision makers that they can start on right now. And if they just go to strategykeys.com slash engage now, they can get their free copy of that worksheet. And I, I hope folks will download that. Um, the other thing that I'm excited about is... Uh, I'll be launching a new masterclass on building your team of super allies sometime early summer, exact date not yet known. But um, if you go to uh, collect your worksheet, there will also be an opportunity to get on the wait list for that masterclass. And that will also be a free masterclass. So I want to just give folks a chance to get uh, get their feet wet with that a little bit and uh, learn some more of the techniques and have a chance to get their questions answered as well. All right. That sounds awesome. Thank you so much. It was great having you on the podcast and good luck with all your clients and and influencing. All right. Well, yes, influencing, not advocacy. There we go. (laughs) Thanks for having me. It's great talking with you always. And uh, I hope we get to do this often. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. That's missionimpactpodcast, all one word, dot com slash show notes. We want to hear from you. 
Take a minute to give us some feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. Thanks and see you next time.